was a freshman in high school, um, I was able to play on the varsity football team. And you thought, well, that, that's great. No, it was terrible. Because uh, I was about 135 pounds. Everybody else was like 250 or 275. They all had beards. And uh, we did this thing called the bowl in the ring, which basically you put some poor victim in the center, and then you have everybody else in a circle about 10 yards away from the, the victim or the, the player. And the coach calls out the person's name around the circle. And it's the job of the person in the middle, the bowl, uh, to put their head on a swivel to be looking at where the player's coming from. Sometimes they're right in front of you, sometimes they're right behind you. If they're right behind you, you know their name's been called, you know that they're on their way, they have been sent. And as soon as you turn around, just get flattened. Uh, I got decleated every time I got hit. Um, call out Frank, where's Frank? <laughs> I don't want to get hit by Frank. <laughs> Where, where's Gedrick? Gedrick's 250. I definitely don't want to be hit by Gedrick. Where's Wally? Um, and I just realized at that moment, there was, a, there was a moment in time I thought to myself, I, this isn't what I signed up for. I wasn't a bull in the ring. I was like a little poodle in the <laughs> Just getting beat, tossed to and fro, and uh, I just thought to myself, I, I want to get out of this. Uh, I didn't, I, this is not what I thought I signed up for. And I think a lot of life is like that, just feeling like a bull in the ring or like a little cat in the ring, just getting tossed to and fro, beaten by the circumstances of life. And, and I don't know if uh, you've ever said that to yourself, when you have a circumstance in your life that caught you by surprise, maybe from the behind or on the side, or maybe even in front. And you say to yourself, this is not what I signed up for. This is not how I thought the script of my life was going to go. The circumstances, the relationships. And the question at that moment is, how do I hold on? Not the next week, not the next year, but day by day. How can I be faithful in this moment? The scripture calls that posture perseverance. Perseverance in the day to day. When circumstances aren't going your way, and you say to yourself, this is not the script that I signed up for. This is not the life that I thought I was going to live. Philosopher Robert Roberts makes a distinction from perseverance to courage. Courage is something that you just hit head on. That's not perseverance. Perseverance is, a dis- is distinct from patience. Patience, as David talked about last week, is grace-filled waiting, but oftentimes the time frame is much shorter. So it's like you know, going skiing and you're sitting on I-70. You're just waiting, or you're waiting for an ice cream cone, or in David's illustration last week, waiting for the gas cap to come from Amazon Prime. You have to wait two days. Perseverance is different than, than patience. Perseverance is a keeping a lifelong commitment because of a deeper meaning. Keeping a lifelong commitment, persevering to the end. Question, how do we do that? When circumstances don't go our way, how can we be faithful to the end? Knowing that there's a higher purpose, a higher meaning that we're holding on to. So in other words, perseverance doesn't come from within grit, but actually it comes from without So then how do we as the people of God, when a script has been given to us that we did not ask for and we did not think our life was going to be like this, how can we be faithful, not just in the years and the weeks, but in the moment? Daniel chapter 11 tells us. So I encourage you to turn to Daniel 11, and as you're turning there, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to pray that in your mighty name that you will reveal your power and your presence to us. And for those that are feeling like their knees are about to buckle and the events of their life are coming from every direction and they're not sure how to stand, 
We pray that in your strong name, that by the power of your spirit, that you will cause us not just to stand, but hyperstand, be faithful, be steadfast to the end. Holy Spirit, put within our hearts a deep hunger for the cause of your name. Holy Spirit, draw within us, put within us a greater love for you, passion for you, desire for you. And may this be done not only for our good, but ultimately for your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Daniel 11. (laughs) Read a lot of commentators this week. One commentator said, this is a passage that should only be taught in a classroom, never preached in a sermon. (laughs) So here we go. (laughs) Now, I would disagree. Okay, I disagree. But this is also why we go through books of the Bible, because this Daniel 11 is not a a typical chapter that I would just like pull out and say, this is the passage passage that I want to preach from. Um, But we're going to do it. Um, And the the important part of Daniel 11 is not to get suffocated in the historical details. We are going to dive down a little bit, but not too deep. Now, Verse 2 and 3 and 4 cover a tremendous amount of time. Verse 2 really talks about the Persian Empire for those 200 years in one verse. 3 and 4 talk about Alexander the Great. We looked at him in verse, uh, chapters 8 and 9. Uh, Alexander the Great, he rose up and then he fell. He d- divided his uh, kingdom or his empire into four different generals. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 5. Uh, verse 5, Daniel Chapter 11, the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. I'm going to put up a map, because two of Alexander the Great's generals were Ptolemy and Seleucus. Seleucus from the north created the Seleucid Empire. Ptolemy from the south was the Ptolemaic Empire, known as primarily as the region around Egypt. So the Ptolemaic, the southern kingdom, is in the green. The red is the Seleucid Empire, ruled by Seleucus, at least initially. So read again verse 5. The king of the south will become strong, okay, Ptolemaic, but one of his commanders, Seleucus, will become even stronger. You can see that by the land that he amasses. And he will rule his own kingdom with great power, okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 6. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. This is, in fact, what happens historically. Ptolemy II engages in romantic diplomacy by sending his daughter, Bernice, to the king of the north to try to build a relationship with him with one um, caveat that the heir would then be the heir apparent to the Seleucid Empire. There was one hiccup, though, because Antiochus was already married to Laodicea. <laughs> so he just figured that out. He just put her away and bring in Bernice. Now, two years later, Ptolemy died. Uh, Antiochus put Bernice away and then put Laodicea back. La- uh, Le- Laodicea, I'm sorry, not Laodicea. Laodicea poisoned Antiochus to guarantee that her son would be the heir apparent, not Bernice's son. Bernice was put away. Another problem, Bernice had a brother by the name of Ptolemy III. Father was Ptolemy II. Brother was Ptolemy III. Ptolemy III wanted to ensure an heir to the northern empire. So he attacks, captures the north, kills Laodice, and that's what we see in verse 7. One from her, Bernice, that's the sister of Ptolemy III, 
one from her family line, Ptolemy III, will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. That's what happens. He will also seize the gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver, gold, carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of north alone. Now, for verses 9 through 12, the north and the south are battling against one another until eventually in 198, Antiochus III overcomes the empires of the south and captures Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, you'll see that the red is, I mean, Jerusalem is right there where they intersect with the green and the red. They actually conquer further down and take the, the land, which in the scriptures is called the land of the beautiful, or Israel. And that's what happens in verse 13, 15 through 20. Notice, the king of the north... Antiochus III will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army, fully equipped, verse 15. Then the king of the north, Antiochus III, will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist, even if their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. That's what he does. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land. He takes over Israel and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire army, or entire kingdom, and will make an alliance with the king of the south. How? And he will give him a daughter in marriage. Who is the daughter? We'll find out in just a second in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands around Greece and will take many of them. But a commander from Rome will put an end to his, to his insolence and will turn his insolence back to him, 19. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. Lastly, his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Now, what is happening here? Antiochus III has a daughter, and he also wants to engage in romantic diplomacy by sending his daughter, Cleopatra, to Egypt. Yes, this is where all the good soap operas and sagas come from. Sends Cleopatra down. Problem, Cleopatra becomes more pro-Egyptian than he thought that she would become. There is an alliance that takes place. Antiochus III tries to increase his territory by attacking the Greek Isles. He's pushed back by Rome and undergoes a devastating defeat and damage. And because they, are not, because they don't have much money as a result of all the damage caused of war, Antiochus III actually ends up dying in battle. Antiochus IV then um, pillages uh, the temples of all of their gold, specifically the temple in Jerusalem, in order to pay for the damage that was taken in war. Now, all of this, from verse 2 through 20, takes place over the course of from 530 B.C. to 175 B.C., which is 350 years. And in fact, the king that they end on, um, Antiochus IV, he will die, not in battle, but he actually dies of disease. Now, that's what's happening through verse 20. And then you get to 21 through 35, and that's referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. We're not going to go into detail about him. We looked at him in chapters 8 and 9. All of that to say he comes into Jerusalem, sets up an abomination that causes desolation, a, a, a temple or an altar that's dedicated to Zeus, and they sacrifice a pig. 
And in verse uh, 31, you see Antiochus Epiphanes doing this. His armed forces will rise up, desecrate the temple fortress, will abolish the daily sacrifice. They'll set up an abomination that causes desolation. Now, what's important here in um, 21 through 35 is that it mirrors verses 36 through 45. Now, this is where we're going to begin to scale up a bit. There's been a lot of controversy over who is the king that exalts himself in 36 to the end of the chapter. But here's the point that we need to see. And what's so fascinating about this text is that everything in 21 through 35 mirrors everything from 36 to 45. And this is what I mean. You have the rise of a powerful king or a powerful leader. And as they rise up, they engage in conflict and oppression, especially oppression of the people of God. And the people of God, as they go through suffering, are called to be steadfast and persevere through it. The exact same sequence takes place. So who, whoever it is in 36 through 45, the point isn't who is the person historically. The point is what is trying to be communicated in the scriptures, the big idea. Because it mirrors what takes place right before 36 through 39. It's the rise and the, the, the successful leadership of a king, followed by conflict and oppression, verses 40 to 45, and suffering from the people of God, and they are called to be steadfast fast. In verses 32 through 35, it says, with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist. So you will go through suffering. You will go through hardship. You will go through difficult time, but the response is to remain steadfast, to be perseverant. Now, we can get the historical facts wrong, but we can't get the big idea of what the scriptures are proclaiming here. And that is this, that we are called to persevere. Listen, persevere through hardship, through trouble, through difficulty in this life. That's the point of the passage. So we may get Ptolemy 6 wrong and Ptolemy 3rd and Cleopatra. We might get that wrong, but don't get this wrong. That the faithful... The faithful followers of Yahweh, of God, will persevere to the end, even in the midst of hardship and tragedy and difficulty. That's the point. But the question remains is how? How can we remain faithful? And the answer to that is all throughout this passage. There's a word that gets repeated or a phrase, and it's the appointed time. It's the time. It's the time. So, for example, in verse 24, but only for a time. The ruler will come and will rule, but only for a time. Verse 27, then an end will still come at the appointed time. 29, at the appointed time. Verse 35, for it will still come at the appointed time. Verse 36, for what has been determined, the determined time must take place, verse 40, at that time, the time of the end of the king of the south, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, at that time. The phrase gets repeated, that time, that time, the appointed time, the time that has been determined. All throughout this passage, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but God is sovereign over all things. That's the point of this passage. We can persevere through hardship because God is sovereign over all. And what's so humorous about this passage is that yeah, kingdoms come, kingdoms go. You have kingdoms grabbing land, losing land, acquiring land, you know, forfeiting land. Kings coming, kings rising up, kings dying, kings leaving. And by the end of the story, they accomplish nothing. And God is sovereign over all. 
his kingdom is established. Over 350 years of fighting, of warring, they accomplish zip, nothing, nil. And the kingdom of God stands forever. That's the point. Okay. But notice, perseverance doesn't come from within, mustering something within, but actually comes from without. So how do we persevere? How do we? I want to offer up two things. Now, this, as David mentioned last week, um, last week's sermon, this week's sermon, and actually next week's sermon are going to be very similar. How do we stand? How do we wait? How do we persevere? I'm going to offer up two things that the text declares. Um, we are called to be, have a perspective from above and be obedient in the now. A perspective from above and be obedient in the now. First, we're called to have a perspective from above. We're to have a vision, faith for the one who is unseen, who is over all. Because if sovereign, understanding God's sovereignty is the key to faithfulness and perseverance through suffering and hardship and difficulty, then in order to understand a sovereign God or to see the sovereign God, we have to have the, his perspective, a perspective from above. Now, what's fascinating, throw that map up again really quick if you can find it. Okay, if you, if you see where Israel is, and this is throughout the history of Israel, they're always between two superpowers. They're called the land between. So you have the Ptolemaic uh, kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom, and they're squinched in, squinched in. They're between two things, always through the history of Israel. Also, Israel was never known. <laughs> for their skillful warfare or their being well-resourced. In the words of Hamilton, they were outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. <laughs> That's their story. That's their story. And it is so tempting if you're living in the land between or if you're living in the messy middle, the time between the times, if you're living in our time, the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, it is so easy to have our eyes focused on circumstances in this life. So much so that we can get confused by thinking that this particular circumstance or situation that I'm facing right now will cover the entirety of my life. And we make the mistake by seeing the circumstances that we're engaged in right now, characterizing what is ultimately true of us, and it does not. It's the same thing that children make when, they drive by, when we drive by a McDonald's and they say, Dad, I want a Happy Meal. And if you give me a Happy Meal, I'll be happy for the rest of my life. <laughs> and they make the mistake of saying, if I just have this one circumstance turn out the way I want it to turn out, then that will cover the entirety of my life. They also make the opposite um, mistake. If I say, no, you can't have the Happy Meal, they'll say, you don't love me anymore. <laughs> my life is ruined. If you don't give me what I want in this particular moment, what, what, what's life worth living? I mean, why go on anymore? And that's the mistake that a child makes. But we, are we any different? When we, when we ask God, Lord, if you just change this particular situation, everything will be better. Lord, if you, just, if you just move this one particular relationship, move this one particular circumstance or situation, if you change this aspect of my job, then I will serve you in faithfulness and perseverance. And we make the mistake that a child makes by thinking that the changing of this particular circumstance will impact the entirety of our life or informs the entirety of our life. In order to get outside of that mindset, we have to have a perspective from above. A perspective from above. It was so cute. I don't know if you saw this, but when the cross went forward and it was in the middle there and Katie read the gospel, there was a number of the kids that came out into the aisle to see the cross. 
and to hear the gospel being read. I wish we could all be like that. You know, always looking for Jesus, look, having a perspective from above, beyond me. You're having that, that spirit of curiosity, you know. I, I was meditating on this last night in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus walking on the water. The waves had kicked up, the wind had kicked up, and Jesus is walking on the water towards the boat. And the disciples are terrified. And then Jesus says, take courage, and the translator often translates, it is I. That's not the direct translation. It is, take courage, I am, which is the covenant name of God. Yahweh, I am who I am. He's identifying himself as God himself. So disciples, I know you're in the midst of a storm. I know you're in the midst of waves. Peter, I know you're sinking. I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the one way, the one truth and life. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on me. Get your perspective from above, not from the circumstances in your life. And that's how we're called to have perseverance. This is first and foremost. But secondly, secondly, we're also called to the obedience in the now. Verse 32. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist. Resist. We're called to be faithful and obedient in the now. I had a friend a number of years ago, um, he he shared a little bit with me about his AA experience. He says, Billy, in order to uh, stay sober, um, my sponsor tells me, I can't think about being sober tomorrow. I can't think about being sober next week. I can't think about being sober next year. I think about being sober today, now. That's for us here. Don't think about being faithful and obedient tomorrow. Being obedient next week, next year. Think about being obedient now, in the now. Because now is the moment that God has given you. Yes, faith is looking beyond. Hope is looking into the future. But faithfulness and obedience is being obedient in the now. Faith looking above, hope looking beyond, obedience standing in the now. C.S. Lewis says, uh, and David quoted uh, um, Screwtape Letters last week, and what he mentioned is, is, tr- the se- is the senior devil's um, um, advice to the junior devil. And another part of that book, C.S. Lewis um, uh, characterizes the senior de- demon giving advice to the junior demon. The junior demon wants to like, cause the client or the Christian to cause a great sin. And while the senior demon says, I really appreciate your ambition, that's not what you need to be focusing on. He says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided they are cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Perseverance is obedience in the small things now. So what do you need to be faithful to now? Not looking at now. Not partaking in now. Being faithful to your spouse now. Being present to your kids now. Now. Because faithfulness now is the faithfulness to tomorrow. I love the quote. Abba Anthony was a third century monk, and I love this phrase that he uses in regards to perseverance. Wherever you live, do not, do not leave easily. Wherever you live, do not leave easily. Do not quit. Do not give up. 
Remain steadfast, remain firm. And this is counterintuitive, especially in the culture in which we live. Even in Christianity, I mean, somebody comes, gives their life to Christ and they think, now that I've given my life to Jesus, my life will be easier. <laughs> I'll get the raise, I'll get the promotion. She will always say yes. The homecoming group will be healthy, affirming. The girls will be welcoming and they won't say anything mean. You know, everything in my life will work out. The coach will always start me and give me the exact playing time that I want. And when we think our life will go like that, basically what we're doing is we're taking snippets of God's promises in the Bible and we're pasting them all together out of context and sprinkling on it the American dream, which is not the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. We're called to take up your cross and we're called to follow Jesus. Obedience is faithfulness in the now. Faithfulness in the now. So in order to persevere, to be faithful to the end, perspective from above, obedience in the now. And when we're able to do that, we will be persevering, be faithful through the difficulties, through the tragedies, through the hardships of our life, to persevere to the end. In summation, probably the thing, the text that brings this all together is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off obedience. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You know, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Perspective from above. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful humanity. You know, he was, he was crucified. He died. He was now seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Perspective from above. Faithfulness in the now. That leads perseverance. Let's have a baptism.